As you heard Chris read earlier, we are going to be um, speaking out of Isaiah chapter 61 this morning. We're actually going to end up in Luke chapter 4, as this is where Jesus interprets this passage for us. And is there any better teacher to learn from than the Lord Jesus Himself? I think not. So um, we will definitely be going to His interpretation of this passage to make sure that we... um, Uh, get the right meaning out of it. But just for sake of context, let's begin there. No, in Isaiah, I apologize. Isaiah 61 is where we will begin this morning. And I want to give you just a little bit of context. You know, we have been talking about these um, people of God that have been basically trapped in darkness because of the sin that is in their lives. Because of the curse that is in the world, they have found themselves in a very dark place. They have been crying out to God for salvation, wondering why He's forsaken them, wondering where He is, and He's been promising them that His salvation is coming, His light is coming, that they should trust in Him and wait on Him and repent and turn back to Him and and keep following Him with all of their hearts because there is light at the end of this dark tunnel. And so in basically Isaiah 59 and verse 60, because we were in Isaiah 58 last week, and you remember that Isaiah 58 was basically about seeking God genuinely, about turning back to Him with a genuine heart and actually having a desire to be reconciled with Him. Instead of just coming to church and going through the motions as if this is uh, something that He would desire for you to do to just come to church. He says, no, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a heart that truly wants to hear from me and my Word. I'm looking for a heart that truly wants to seek after me. I'm looking for a heart that wants to be conformed to my image and to show goodness and kindness and meekness and filled with all the fruits of the Spirit. And so He gives them promises in Isaiah 58 that if you will genuinely seek Me, that I will hear your prayers. Your prayers are not going to be hindered. If you will genuinely seek Me, I am going to uh, remove the darkness and there is going to be light in the midst of your darkness. If you will genuinely seek Me with all your heart, I'm going to guide you continually. And all these promises can be seen in Isaiah chapter 58. But again, where we're getting to today... All of that context is built up in Isaiah 59 and 60. And so Isaiah 59 and 60 is basically about the darkness of our sin and why uh, there is so much darkness in the world. And then we see the coming of salvation. And so there's a lot of repetition in this. And that's the reason why I'm skipping over 59 and 60 because I don't want to just do the same thing over and over again every Sunday. But I want you to be able to notice that in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 14 through 20, God tells them exactly what this light of salvation is going to look like. And so in Isaiah chapter 59, beginning in verse 14, look at what He says here. He says, Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. This is the reason why there's so much darkness in the world, okay? And then he says, truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. So the problem is, the truth of God is not in the hearts of men. It has stumbled. We do not follow the the truth of God, but instead we follow the desires of our own heart. And as a result of that, darkness is all over the world. 
In verse 15 he says, Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and he wondered that there was no one to intercede. So here's the problem. God sees the darkness of man. God sees the lack of justice. God sees the lack of righteousness in the world. And He knows this is the reason why there is so much curse in this world and why we experience the darkness that we do. But He is amazed that there is no one to intercede, that there is no one to stand in the gap. Basically, even the prophets of old, there was no one that was at a standard of goodness that they would be able to stand between God and man and intercede for them. So what is God going to do about this? How is God going to bring light in the midst of this darkness? Well, look what He says in verse 17, or in the end of verse 16. Then His own arm brought Him salvation. So in other words, if somebody, if if, if there is anybody that is going to meet the standard that God requires in order to bring light into this dark world, who does it have to be? It has to be God Himself. His own arm will bring Him salvation. And look what He says next. And His righteousness will be upheld. This is the reason why the life of Jesus, the perfect life of Jesus, had to be lived. Jesus could not come and just die on the cross. No, the uprightness of God has to be upheld. God requires a certain standard out of mankind. And the only way that God is going to be satisfied is if someone lives out His truth. Someone lives out His justice in this world. And so He has to do it. Now look at verse 17. How does He do it? Well, He put on righteousness as a breastplate. In other words, He was the righteousness of God here in this world. Not only that, but He put a helmet of salvation on His head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. He wrapped Himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will He repay. He will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render payment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream with which the wind of the Lord drives. And then look at verse 20. And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. So without... Interpreting those scriptures for you, here's the summary of it. There is darkness in this world. And the reason there is darkness is because truth is lacking. The reason there is no justice in the world is because the truth of God is lacking. People do not want to follow God. They want to follow their own hearts. And is this not true in us as well? It's true a lot of times in me. Is it not true in you? I don't want to follow the ways of God. I want to do what feels right in my own heart. And when I do that, what's the result of it? Darkness. Nothing good comes from it. And so here he says, here's what I'm going to do about it. I'm going to come. I'm going to bring uprightness. I'm going to bring righteousness. I am going to fulfill the standard that I require and I am going to send a Redeemer to pay the price for your darkness. And sin, when we get to Isaiah 61, here's what we walk into. God describes what this Redeemer is going to do. Here's what this, here's the ministry goals of this Redeemer. And so, in order to understand this, I want you to go with me first to Luke chapter 4. 
Because all Luke does is he quotes Isaiah, or all Jesus does here is he quotes Isaiah in Luke chapter 4. And I want you to understand that the Jews knew that these passages were about the Messiah. Again, it said plainly, a Redeemer is going to come to Zion. They know that these passages are messianic, if you will. They pertain to the coming Savior. Now Jesus has been going throughout all of Galilee. Before we get to Luke chapter 4, He's been going throughout all of Galilee. He has been doing great miracles. He's been teaching in all the synagogues. Look with me if you would at Luke... uh, Hold your place in Luke 4, 4. I'll put these up here. But Luke 4 verse 14 and 15. Look at what it says. And Jesus returned. That means He's been somewhere, right? Now you don't read about this because Luke don't record it. But if you want to read about this, go read the first four chapters of John. The first four chapters of John record all the things that He's been doing in this ministry before He returns to His hometown of Nazareth. Alright? And it says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about Him went out through all the surrounding country. What does that tell you? Jesus is famous, right? The things He's doing, the things He's teaching. Even Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the teacher of Israel, comes to Jesus during this time and says, Teacher, we know that you are from God. For no one can do the things that you are doing unless God is with him. So Jesus has been doing so many things that people are amazed at His miracles, at His teaching. And then look at verse 15. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by who? So Jesus is a famous dude, right? Now when somebody famous comes back home, that's a pretty special event, right? And so here's what we've got happening. Jesus has been going around all these synagogues, and there is at least one synagogue in every city, and there are some 200-something cities all around Nazareth that He's been preaching and teaching in. And so every synagogue He's been going in, and because they see what He does, they hand Him the scrolls and they say, you're the preacher today. And He preaches and He teaches, and they're amazed at what they hear coming out of His mouth. But then, notice what Jesus does whenever He comes back home. In verse 16, look what happens here. And He came to Nazareth where He had been what? So this is the hometown boy. The famous famous prophet of God has returned. He has come home. And then notice what it says next. And as was His custom, He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now that's pretty important. Jesus is the Son of God. He's on the mission of God. But what is His custom every Sabbath day? He goes to church. Every Sabbath day, Jesus goes to church. He don't miss church. Now, I'm not just a preacher and a pastor up here trying to get more people in these pews. Y'all know that. All I'm saying is it's pretty special when we read right here that the custom of Jesus, even though He's the Son of God, even though He's the preacher for all people, even though He's traveling all over the world every Sunday or every Sabbath day in this day and time, where is He at? He's in church. That's all I'm saying. You take that and apply it to your life however you think it needs to be applied. But notice He says next, 
It says that he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Now here's the process of a typical synagogue worship service. Very similar to what we do actually. Basically all of the people of God would gather together, especially the... um, uh, the, the Pharisees or any of the, any of the Jewish people, they're going to gather together in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. The synagogue is just basically a gathering place, kind of like a church building. The temple was where they go for their sacrifices and for all their uh, rituals and worship services that they have to do. But the synagogue is the place where they come to learn about God. One of the first things that's going to happen is there's going to be a ruler of the synagogue. And his job is to make sure that the order of the service goes accordingly, to make sure that he selects the people that are going to stand and read from the Scripture and are going to give the interpretation of it at the same time. And so basically, the, um, the, the ruler of the synagogue would start the service and he would open up with, with prayers of some kind and then he would open up with uh, singing psalms and usually it would be the Hallel Psalms in the later part of the Psalms. He would, they would sing the Psalms together. And then after the Psalms were sung, there would be more prayers prayed. And then after prayers again, they would come back together and they would um, read from the Torah or the book of the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. So he would select somebody. So let's say I'm the ruler of the synagogue. We're going to have a service this morning. We've had our prayers. We've sang our praises. And now I'm going to come and I'm going to say, okay... Well, I select Jack Borkart here to read from um, Deuteronomy chapter 4 and he is going to read it and he's going to give an interpretation of these scriptures. And then after that, they're going to read from what they call the half Torah, which is the prophets. So you had the law, then you had the prophets. And then you're going to select a person to read from the prophets. And so I say, okay, Donnie Malone this morning is going to take um, Isaiah and he's going to read these verses to us and then he's going to give the interpretation of it. And in the process of it, then we would have basically a Sunday school uh, program. So now all of the men that are sitting there are going to respond to what's being taught and there's going to be conversation and discussion and this is the way that it would, basically the service would go. Apparently, Jesus has been selected because He's famous, right? They've heard about all of His teachings, they've heard about all of His miracles that He's done and now He's coming home. And they want to hear all from this guy now personally, all that they've heard that he's been doing everywhere else. And so they select him to read from the portion of the prophets. And so here's what happens. He stood up to read, and then look at verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So now he has an option to pick anywhere from Isaiah that he wants to pick, and he can explain to them these scriptures. And here's what he does. He unrolls the scroll and he finds the place where it is written. So he's looking for a specific place, right? This is the place he goes to. Remember, please keep the context. They've heard all that he's done. He's been going out the blind see, the lame walk. Um, He's feeding the hungry. He's, um, He's teaching like nobody's ever taught before. And they're wondering, who is this guy? And so he opens the Scriptures and here's what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon who? You want to know how I'm doing everything I'm doing? You want to know why I'm doing everything I'm doing? You want to know who I am? Listen closely. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Why? Because He has what? Anointed me. Now that's important too, because they understood that the anointed one was the Messiah. Actually, the word Messiah literally means the anointed one. See, in the Old Testament, there were basically um, three anointed positions. And so, to be set apart for the service of God in one of these positions required for you to be anointed with God's Spirit. And one of those places was the role of a prophet. Anybody know what the prophet did? The prophet brought the Word of God to the people, right? So he comes and the prophet says, Thus says the Lord. Now I know a lot of people think of prophecy as predicting the future. And there is an element in prophecy that's about future telling. But prophecy in and of itself is not just future telling. Prophecy is simply this. Thus says the Lord. This morning what I am doing to you is prophecy. I'm not predicting the future. I'm not telling you. Only future I'm predicting is what God tells me is going to happen in the future, okay? But I take the Word of God, and now I turn around and I say to the people of God, Thus says the Lord. And in Old Testament times, a person had to be anointed by God with the Spirit of God for that purpose. But remember what Moses said? There's going to come a prophet that's even greater than me. And He's going to give you a word from the Lord that's even greater than the law. And so, that's one anointed position. Another anointed position was the priest. The priest's role was to stand in the gap between God and man. He first had to be cleansed of his sins. He had to be consecrated and set apart by God, anointed by the Spirit. Then he could come in and take the sacrifice for the people's sin and he could present it before God and then God would forgive the people of their sins because of what the priest has offered. So we've got to have a priest that comes that's greater than the Levitical priesthood because the sacrifices they do can never take away sins is what Hebrews says. And so we've got to have another anointed one. We've got to have another anointed prophet that's greater than Moses. We've got to have another anointed priest that is greater than Aaron or any other priest. We have got to have a, the, next, uh, uh, the last anointed position was the king. We have to have a king, and the king's job was to lead the people. The king's job was to lead them to victory. The king's job was to lead them into the promised land. And basically, a reflection of the people was a reflection of the king. If the people fared well, then the king was a good king. If the people did not fare well, then the king was not necessarily viewed as a good king. And so whenever we come into Jesus' kingdom, we have to understand that when Jesus actually reigns as king over the kingdom that is coming, that we have hope in, there is going to be such a kingdom that the Bible talks about praying that we would know the riches of our inheritance. That we are going to be in a promised land like none other. That there were, and basically, when Jesus was walking through doing all these miracles, this is what he was proving to the people. In his kingdom, there will be no blind that cannot see. In his kingdom, there will be no lame that cannot walk. In his kingdom, when he is in authority and when he reigns over the kingdom that we will be a part of, there will be no one that is hungry because he can take two fish and five loaves, and what can he do with that? and have how much left over. 
so that everyone is filled and we got leftovers. The point being is that Jesus is walking through and everything He's doing is to prove that He teaches the way that He teaches because He has the Word of God. He talks and He does the things that He does because He is the one that will stand in the gap between man and God. Everything that He does walking through the kingdom and healing and feeding the hungry is because He is going to be the King in which we are going to be people of His kingdom and we will never do without whatsoever. And all of these places are the anointed positions. And so they're looking for the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that is going to fulfill all of the roles that God requires for us to come out of darkness into light. Are y'all tracking with me this morning? So Jesus, as they're wondering, who is this guy? What is he doing? He picks this scripture and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Why? Because he has anointed me. And here are the next four things that we're going to look at, the four goals of Jesus' ministry that we're going to look at. Goal number one right here is this, to proclaim good news to the poor. So again, He wants them to understand who He is. And the first thing is, I am the anointed one. I am the one that this scripture talks about. It is being fulfilled in your hearing today is what he ends up telling them just a few verses down. And when he says that, you know what he means when he says this scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing? He's saying, I'm here. The anointed one is here. And here's what I am doing. Here's why I'm going around doing what I'm doing. And the first thing he says is, I am here to proclaim good news to the poor. Well, the first thing we understand is to proclaim something means to shout it from the rooftops. It means to let everybody know this is my goal. And so what does that mean? Well, these are about people who realize that they have nothing of which they truly need. These are people that, this is the same word that is used whenever we read about the parable or the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And you remember the Bible says that Lazarus was a poor beggar. He was somebody that was set outside of the gate of the rich man to just beg for crumbs. And he wouldn't even give him the crumbs, but he gave the dogs the crumbs. And so the point being is that when we look at what it means to proclaim good news to the poor, he's talking about people who are absolutely bankrupt and have nothing. And you say, well, is he talking about economically or is he talking about spiritually? Well, in a sense, both. And the reason I say that is this. Jesus said that it is very difficult for a rich man to enter into heaven. You remember that? He actually said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, and there's context to that too, but just for sake of this morning's sermon, just picture a camel and actually a needle, alright? But it's still, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into heaven. And then the apostles basically looked back at him and said, well, who has any hope? And he said, well, what's impossible with man is possible with God. With God, all things are possible. Here's the point. A lot of times our riches stand in the way of us truly seeing that we have a need that nothing in this world can satisfy. 
As long as we have food on our table, a job that's bringing in money, a roof over our head, we're able to provide for our children, we're able to do, um, to do things that we're able to have things that we want and desire, then the truth of the matter is we're pretty content, right? But how many of you know that sometimes darkness comes into our life where we realize that none of that stuff matters? It don't fix nothing. I'd give it all the way to remove this darkness. And what we have to understand is that people that are already naturally destitute of all of these things of life, they are brought to that place a lot quicker than a rich man is. And so unfortunately... Many of us are at a disadvantage because of how blessed we are. But for somebody to be poor here in this context, Jesus is talking about somebody that is poor in spirit. Somebody that is kind of like, you remember the parable of the the Pharisee and the tax collector? They're both standing at the temple and they're both praying. The Pharisee over here, with his flowing robes and his self-righteousness, he stands and he says, God, I thank you. That I'm not like that tax collector over there. God, I thank you that I go to church every Sabbath day. God, I thank you that I give of all my tithes. God, I thank you that I follow the law. God, I thank you that I do this and I do this. Here is a man that does not understand that he is poor in spirit. He thinks he has everything that he needs. But then we have this tax collector on the other side. Do you remember what his conversation was? He wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven. But instead, all he would do was beat his breast. Lord, forgive me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, that man went home justified today. Why? Because he was already in a place that he understood that he was spiritually bankrupt. He has a need that he cannot pay for. There is nothing he can do to redeem himself from his sins. There is nothing he can do to remove the darkness of the curse of this world in his life. And unless God does something, there is absolutely no hope. And Jesus said, here's why I'm going about and I'm going to the poor and I'm doing all this because I'm looking for the people who are poor. The people who understand they need the Lord and unless the Lord does something, I have no hope. And here's what He said, I came to proclaim good news to those kind of people. That is my goal. That is what I'm here for this morning. See, the truth of the matter is this. People who are self-righteous, people who think that they've got it all together, people who think that they're good enough and that they've not really been a bad person and people that are not seeking God and don't see any need in their life because they're content and satisfied with the things of this world. He said, unfortunately, you're not ready for the good news. You remember the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what must I do to be saved? He said, well... You know the law. In other words, if you can keep all the law, you can be saved. That's what you must do to be saved. What must you do? You must keep all the law and not miss a single iota of it. Can you do that? You remember what that rich young ruler said? Well, I've done all this since my youth. In other words, self-righteousness, right? I've got it all figured out. I know exactly what it is. And Jesus said, okay. But one thing you lack. Let me point out something to you that you've missed. Go and sell everything you own and give it to the poor. 
then you will have treasure in heaven. In other words, you are so in love with your riches that they stand in the way of you truly seeking God. They stand in the way of you truly seeing your need. And the Bible says that the rich man turned and he walked away sad because he had many, many goods. You know what was always funny to me? Why didn't Jesus run after this guy, grab him and turn him around and say, No, you don't understand. You don't understand. If you'll just trust in me, if you'll just, if you'll just believe on me, if you'll just um, understand who I am and, and believe it with all of your heart, then you will be saved. Why didn't Jesus do that? Instead, Jesus let the man walk away. You know why? Because the man was not poor. He was poor, but he didn't see how poor he was. And until you become poor of spirit and poor of heart, you're not ready for the good news of salvation. God does not give grace until you come to the place that you understand that I have no hope except He give me grace. And so he says here, I came to proclaim good news to the poor. I came to make sure that the ones that recognize their poorness, that I have a gift that is greater than all. And you remember what he said in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs, anybody remember? Is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit because I've got a kingdom for them. I've got everything they could possibly need. I've got satisfaction and galore for all those that are poor in spirit. And so that's the first goal that he has. The second goal that he has, he says, I came to proclaim liberty to the captives. Proclaim liberty to the captives. Now this kind of, um, kind of doesn't quote exactly what Isaiah 61 says. And there is some um, argument about it, but here's another thing you need to understand about the synagogue service. In the synagogue service, they may skip around in the prophets. And so they may read this passage from the prophets. They may read this. You know how I do whenever I'm trying to interpret this passage? I may take you to this passage, right? I may take you to this passage. And that's one thing that the Bible talks about when it says we need to study to show ourselves approved so that we can rightly divide the word of truth. We have to be able to understand that, yes, we can be able to let this Scripture interpret this Scripture, or this Scripture interpret this Scripture. And basically Jesus goes and He picks a lot out of Isaiah 61, but He also picks up other things in some places, like I think Isaiah 42, I believe, is where some of this comes from. But still, the next thing that He says in His goal is, I came to proclaim liberty to the captives. And so liberty being freedom, captives being people who are trapped in something, right? And so what is it that we are trapped in that we need to be freed from? Well, I want you to understand that in John chapter 8, verse 34, look what Jesus says about us in our sin condition. He says, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. If you, um, if you have... Uh, a, a desire and a will to obey sin in your life, then you are a slave to whatever it is that you obey. Look again. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly. In other words, this is absolute, undisputable truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is what? A slave to sin. Alright, well, look with me at another verse. Look at uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 16 through 18. I may not have gave him those verses. I don't know if I did or not. 
Romans chapter 6. Let me turn there and read it to you. Romans 6 verse 16, look what it says. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient, here's where, from the heart, to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been what? Set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So there's the goal right there. We need freedom from sin. See, what you need to understand is that in your life, you are born enslaved to sin. Now, I'm not saying that you are born and that you're going to be as bad as Hitler or that, but I am saying that you're capable of it. You want to know why Hitler became as bad as he was? Because he followed his own heart. All you got to do is follow your own heart. You want to preach for me? All you got to do is follow your own heart, and guess what? You can be as bad as anybody else in this world. It depends on the depths of your heart and where it takes you to. But we have to understand that when we are born, the Bible tells us that we are born dead to the spiritual things of God. Ephesians chapter 2. We're born to the, de- to, to the spiritual things of God. We are dead. And what, what can a dead man do? Nothing. And he says that in that, that we will follow the course of this world, that we will follow the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan, And we do not seek the things of God. Now, I'm not saying that you don't have a conscience, right? Because how many of you know that you raise your children to know right from wrong, right? Everybody has a conscience, but that standard of right and wrong is different for everybody, right? What's wrong in your culture may not be wrong in someone else's culture. What's wrong in their culture may not be wrong in your culture. The truth of the matter is, when we go to Guatemala to share the gospel over there, if the women are not wearing dresses, that's wrong. It's wrong. How many of you in here this morning, if you were living according to that culture, you'd be wrong this morning? But again, that's not what makes us sin. The point is that we have a standard of right and wrong that's different in cultures and different in hearts and different in minds. And so we are born with this conscience, but at the end of the day, you are captive to follow your own heart. What guides you and what directs you are the right and wrongs of your own heart, are the desires and passions of your own heart. You are not born with a heart and a mind that says, God, I just want to be pleasing to you. I want to learn from you. I want to follow you. You don't have that in you. And the Bible says that until your eyes are open to that, until you hear the truth about who you are and about God requires of you, you are captive to your sin and you will always follow your own heart. You will always do whatever is right in your own eyes. And that is what it means to be a slave of sin. You have no choice. You give yourself over to your sin to obey it, whatever it is. But... The Bible promises us that if you abide in my word, let me find the scripture for that. That is John chapter um, John chapter 8, I believe it is. Look at verse 31 and 30 through 33. John chapter 8, verse 31 through 33. Look what Jesus says here. 
So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed Him, If you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples. And you will know what? The truth. And the truth will what? If you abide in My Word. In other words, if you believe what Jesus says about you, if you trust Him as your Savior, if He gives you new life and causes you to be born again, now you have a heart, now you have a mind that wants to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you abide in His Word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to proclaim the good news for you, And when you hear the good news, you hear the truth about God and about yourself. And then when you abide in that Word, you believe that Word, you follow that Word, you know the truth, and the truth is what sets you free. That is an important concept for you to understand as a Christian who believes in Him this morning. And so I want to show you my next... um, My next question, how do we live in that freedom? Because how many of you sometimes still feel like a slave to sin? You still fall back into those things, right? So how do we live in that freedom? Well, to be free from sin, listen, you have to get in the fight. You remember when the Apostle Paul was getting ready uh, to go meet his Maker and stand before God in judgment. Paul didn't say, I danced a great dance. He said, I fought the good fight. And then he used another metaphor. He said, I have finished the what? The race. You know what effort it takes to run a race? How many of y'all could run a, could run a mile race this morning? Two miles, three miles. He said, I finished the race. And then he said, I kept the what? The faith. And finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. And so the point being is this. If you want to make sure that you are free, the freedom comes from the truth of God. That's where the freedom comes from. But if you abide in His Word, you will know the truth, and the truth will continually set you free as you follow Him. And so you have to choose to walk in His Spirit. And a lot of people, again, are going to think I'm preaching a works-based salvation this morning. I'm not. Salvation is by faith and faith alone. But it don't mean that you don't have responsibility in following Christ. Look at a few scriptures to back that up with me. Uh, See if I gave you all Romans chapter 8, verse 5 through 9. Romans chapter 8, verse 5 through 9. There it is. For those who live according to the flesh, in other words, your choice, right? You live according to the flesh. They set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit do what? Set their minds on the things of the Spirit. They're abiding in His Word. They're listening to Him. They want to follow Him. And then look at what verse 6 says. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Alright? You see that responsibility there? To set your mind on it? Now, go with me to verse 7 in that same passage. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it what? It can't. Remember, you're dead, right? 
You're spiritually dead to the things of God. And if you are in the flesh and if you are in the world, you're following the desires of your own heart. You can't follow God. It's not possible. Now go with me to verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But then here's the solution in verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh anymore. You know why? Because you've heard the truth. Because you've believed the truth. And when you do that, He gives you His Spirit. You're not in the flesh anymore. And notice what He says next. Here's how you know. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not what? You don't belong to Him. And so either there is something inside of you that draws you and guides you and is and this is the reason why the Bible says don't quench the Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit. Don't wrestle with the Spirit. Don't strive with the Spirit. Our job is to be filled with the Spirit, right? You have responsibility to be filled with the Spirit. The Bible actually says this, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Now think about the contrast of the two. How do you get drunk with wine? What do you have to do? You have to drink how much of it? Can you get drunk drinking a sip of wine? Not likely. You have to drink a lot of wine to get drunk. So how are you going to not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit? You don't drink a lot of wine. But instead, you drink a lot of the Spirit. You set your mind on the things of the Spirit. See, here's the problem. My good brother Nick King used to say, garbage in what? Y'all remember that? Garbage in, garbage out. If all you ever do is set your mind on fleshly things and you don't set your mind on biblical things, you're not trying to hear from God, you're not trying to seek God, you're not trying to come to Sunday school or to preaching and hear the Word of God. If you're not setting your mind on the things of God, if you're not setting your heart to follow the Spirit of God, if instead you're quenching the Spirit, if instead you're grieving the Spirit, if instead you're striving with the Spirit, then you better believe that you are likely to go back into bondage of slavery. I'm not saying you're going to lose your salvation. Let me give you an example. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, I believe it is. Yeah, look at Galatians chapter 5, verse, uh, verse 1 first. And then we'll go to this um, 5.16. I'm sorry, Riley, this is my fault. I'm not following my notes at all. I'm so far off base, it's not even funny. <coughs> Listen. For freedom, Christ has done what? By faith. By His Word. The truth sets you free. So here's what you have to do. What? Stand firm, therefore, and do not what? Submit again to a yoke of slavery. So here's the point that Paul makes. Paul is saying that, listen, you are set free in Christ by His Word. And as long as you continue to set your mind on these things and abide in His Word and soak up the things of the Lord, then you will no longer be a captive. He came to proclaim liberty to you by giving you the truth of His Word, by giving you His Spirit. How are you going to continue in that freedom? You're going to have to stand firm in that freedom. And you're going to have to make sure that you do not submit yourself to a yoke of slavery again. How do I do that? I have to make sure that I'm setting my mind on spiritual things far more than I'm setting my mind on fleshly things. If all you ever do is spend 90% of your time in front of your TV or 90% of your time on Facebook or social media, 
Can I be honest with you? You're probably not going to walk in the Spirit. Garbage in, garbage out. But if you want to not submit again to the yoke of slavery, then you have a responsibility to stand firm in the freedom that He has given you. Does that make sense to y'all? You want to know why we are so weak as Christians today in America? Because we do not stand firm in the freedom from sin that Christ has given us. And instead, we still dabble with the things of the world. We think we can still find a balance between this and this. And I'm, I, I'm guilty of it too. Am I preaching this morning or not? <laughs> and I want to tell you something. Whenever God brought His people into the promised land in the Old Testament, I think it was somewhere around Exodus 23 maybe, somewhere around in there, God told them, do not make any covenants with the people of the land that I'm bringing you into. They're coming out. I'm going to clean out this land. I'm going to clean out this place. And do not make any agreements with them. You make sure that you stand separate from everything that they do. That's a picture of us spiritually today. God is trying to come in and He is cleaning us out. And in the process of it, we're making agreements with the things that are there that they can remain and they can stay. And that's exactly what happened in the promised land. You remember that? God told them, said, don't you leave a single one of them in there. Yep. You know why He did that? It wasn't because they were of a different race. Had nothing to do with the color of skin. Had nothing to do with background. It had to do with the religion and the God that they served and practiced. And God said, either you separate yourself from all other things that are not of me, or you're going to begin to make agreements with those things. And when you do you're going to become a slave again to sin in some way. And so you have to come out from among them and be separate. And so you have to make a choice to walk in His Spirit. Look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit and what? That's it. Setting your mind on the things of the Spirit setting your mind on the truth of God and what God requires of you, and then as the Holy Spirit is in you, He empowers you, He leads you, He guides you, and then you make the choice to choose to walk in that Spirit. And when you don't grieve it, you don't quench it, you don't wrestle with it, but you follow it, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. How many of you are sick this morning of the sin that is in your life? If you're not, I question whether or not you're even saved. Because I'm going to tell you, I hate my sin. I hate it. I hate it. And I want to kill it. And so many times I find myself like this weak little kid saying, God, why can't I get rid of this? Why can't I conquer this? Why can't I do this? And God said, you ain't walking in my spirit. You're not setting your mind on the things of the spirit. And if you did that, you would not gratify the desires of the flesh, right? So we have to take responsibility for putting ourselves back in that slavery. Y'all understand? All right. So Jesus said, I came to proclaim liberty. 
liberty to the captives. And that comes through the good news that He preaches to us at first. And so we have to make sure that we continue to walk in that good news, live in that good news, follow that good news, rejoice in that good news. I hope you don't ever get tired of hearing the gospel. I hope the gospel to you is always good news. And if you'll do that, you will be free from your sin and you will follow the Lord Jesus in everything that He commands you. Look with me in one more scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. And this will take us to our next point. Lord, I wish I was in Guatemala. I'd preach another five hours and they'd love every minute of it. That's all I'm saying. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. Look what this says. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, what is it? There's freedom. Freedom to those that are captive of their sin. And we all with unveiled face, because remember when, when Moses beheld the glory of the Lord, what did he have to do? He had to put a veil on his face. It was too bright. But we all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord. And how we do that? Because we hear the good news from Jesus. We see Jesus. We see the life that He lived. And then notice what happens. Whenever we're set free by the Spirit, we are being transformed into what? The same image. The more you look at Jesus, the more you focus on Jesus, the more you learn of Jesus, the more you study Jesus, the more you gaze upon Jesus, we are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. Here we see the growth process. Are we transformed into that same image overnight? Wouldn't it be nice if we just got saved today and tomorrow we just like Jesus? But that's not the way it works. Instead, he says, you are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another degree of glory to another degree of glory and so on and so on. And notice what it says next. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It's about having the Spirit of God in your life. Where does that come from? From believing the truth of God from hearing the good news of God. And God promises that all that believe the good news, He gives you His Spirit. You don't have to come in here going, yep, 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 blah, 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 blah. I'm sorry. You don't have to come in there this morning doing none of all that to think you have the Spirit of God. God promises he says, it is a promise to all who believe that you will have His Spirit when you believe that good news. Now your responsibility is to walk in the freedom that that Spirit provides you with. Walk in the power that He gives you. Walk in the knowledge that He gives you. Walk in the path that He points you in. And as long as you continue to do that, you will be free you will no longer be a captive. That's a promise. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now this brings us to the third point, sight to the blind. Jesus said, I came to recover the sight to the blind. And you know, to be blind was a metaphor for someone who couldn't see to walk in God's way. In Romans chapter 2, verse 19, the Bible tells us that the Pharisees were actually called guides for the blind. Look what he says to the Pharisees. And if you are sure that you yourself are a what? A guide to the blind, a light to those who are in 
darkness. So again, being blind is a metaphor for those that cannot see the way of God. You don't know the way of God. You can't walk in the way of God. So all of these things Jesus came to do follow one right after the other. He proclaims the good news and the truth of that good news sets you free. And then He gives you His Spirit and He sets you free from the captivity of sin. And then He gives you sight because you haven't been able to follow the ways of God because you were blind to it. And you can go back and find many examples of that. Go back and study the, the story where Jesus healed the blind man. And, um, and, and Jesus came and talked to the Pharisees about it. And, and He said, well, He once was blind, but now He sees. And if you were actually blind, I could make you see. But because you're not blind and you think you can see, if the blind lead the blind, what happens? And that's what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about giving sight to those to follow the way of God, to make sure that they are walking in the paths of God. And then number four, He came to give liberty for the oppressed. And I love this one right here. The oppressed, when you look up this word, it means people who are pressed down. People who feel crushed by the darkness of this world. They've been in captivity. They, are, they have been subject to their sin. They hear the good news, but they are crushed. They are pressed down. And I love the way that Paul put this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. Look at what he says right here. He says, We are afflicted in every way, but what? Ain't that awesome? That a Christian, when you get the good news of Jesus, when you get set free from your sin, whenever you have hope in what Jesus promises you, you can be afflicted in every way and yet not be crushed. Paul started this out by saying, we don't lose heart. You know what he means when he says we don't lose heart? We don't give up all hope no matter what faces us. And you say, well, maybe Paul ain't been through the darkness like I've been through. Let's see about that. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. Let's see if Paul, what kind of affliction Paul is talking about being afflicted in every way. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. This is good stuff. There it is. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience. So Paul's fixing to tell you a little bit about his affliction, right? Let's see what it is. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. You ever heard somebody say, God won't put more on you than you can handle? They a liar. That ain't what God said. God said you will not be tempted beyond what you are able through His Spirit to overcome. Alright? God never said He won't put more on you than you can bear. Ask the Apostle Paul. He said very plainly that we were so utterly burdened. What does that next part say? Beyond our strength. What's Paul saying about the kind of affliction he endured? He didn't have no strength to endure it. He couldn't get through it. Notice what he says next. Beyond our strength so that we even what? And you want to look at me today and say, yeah, but Paul didn't experience the same kind of affliction that I've been through. Paul said, we despaired of life itself. Life itself. But then whenever you go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8 again. or Actually, go, go with me to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. I'm coming to a close. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. Look what he says. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is what? 
Wasting away affictions uh, uh, in, in every way. It feels like we're being beat down and pressed down and we are oppressed with all the things of this world, but we do not lose heart. Why? Because our inner self is what? It's being renewed day after day. Well, how do you do that, Paul? Look at verse 17. For this light momentary afflict. Now remember... It wasn't light momentary when Paul was talking about it in chapter 1, was it? And now, the same afflictions, the same crushing, and now he looks at you and says, hey, we don't lose heart. We don't give up all hope. Why? Because when we look at the affliction we suffer, we understand it's light and it's momentary. What is momentary? Remember what he said, weeping may endure for the night, but what? Joy comes in the morning. This light momentary affliction is actually preparing for us an eternal what? Wait. See the difference in the two? As far as I, if I'm looking at the crushing and the affliction, the truth of the matter is it's light and it's momentary. When it's compared to the eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. Nothing can even... And, and say, you say, Paul, what are you talking about? What are you looking at? Look at verse 18. As we do what? We look not to the things that are seen. Paul don't put his focus on the affliction. If you put your focus on the affliction, you will be crushed. You will be oppressed. He don't look to the things that are seen, but instead he looks to the things that are unseen because he believes them with all of his heart that what God has promised, God will be faithful to fulfill. And as far as everything God's told me about my crushing, it's light. It's momentary. It's not going to last. Weeping will endure for the night, but joy is coming in the morning. And then he says here, for the things that are seen are transient. That means they're, just, they're, they're going away. They're going away. But the things that are unseen are what? They're eternal. And then y'all go home and read the rest of it. I'm not going to preach the rest of this sermon to you. But Paul talks about the things that he looks to. The new body that God has prepared for him. The new life. The home in heaven. The, the eternal riches. And all the things that he keeps his focus on. But Jesus came for four reasons. And here's the four that I'll give you again. Jesus said, listen, I'm the anointed one. I, this is the reason why I'm doing all these things. This is the reason why I'm teaching all these things. And I came to proclaim good news to the poor in spirit. And the ones that believe it and the ones that are poor in spirit, I came to free you from the captivity of your sin. And then the ones that are freed from the captivity of sin, I came to gave, give you sight so that you can see the ways of God and you can walk in the Spirit and you can follow Him. And the ones that are oppressed and the ones that feel crushed in the affliction as they follow Him, I came to proclaim liberty to you. I came to help you understand that weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning and you can be afflicted in every way, yet not be crushed. How do I do it? I don't look to the things that are seen. I look to the things that are unseen and I trust it and I believe it and I put my hope in it. So I ask you this morning... Are you poor in spirit? Do you understand what it means to be a sinner? Do you understand what it means to be a rebel against God?
Do you understand what it means to walk in your own ways and not have any heart to follow God? He says here, if you recognize that and you thirst for reconciliation, you thirst for salvation, He has good news for you. He came to give it to you. He came to pay the price for you. He came to give you the power to walk in the Spirit of God. He came to give you the knowledge to walk in the Spirit of God. He came with good news. He came to set you free. Are you captive in sin this morning? Have you put yourself back in a yoke of bondage to different sins? Are you seeking the things that are above? Are you setting your mind on the things of the Spirit? Or are you letting all the garbage of this world go in? Because if garbage comes in, garbage goes out. But if the things of God go in with the Spirit of God and you don't quench it, you don't grieve it, but instead you submit to it, you surrender to it, the things of God will come out and you will not fulfill the desire of your flesh. That's the truth. And then finally, if you're oppressed this morning and you feel crushed, He would say to you, be of good courage. Do not lose heart. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And then let's finish up Luke chapter 4. Go to the, go to the last part of it. Luke chapter 4. <clears throat> Look at verse um, 19. The last thing he says, I came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is the summer of it all. This is the Lord's favor on you that I'm here to do. And then he says in verse 20, and he rolled up the scroll. <laughs> I love this. It's like a mic drop. It's like Jesus took the mic and went, I'm done. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Him. You know why? Because they heard this messianic prophecy and they said, what? This can't be who this is. We know Him. We know where He came from. We know His daddy in them. And then notice what He says next in verse 21. And He began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I'm here. That's what I'm doing. You, you wonder why I'm famous? This is what I'm doing. And look at verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. So they want to believe. But look what happens next. And they said, But is this not Joseph's son? Ain't this this kid we watch grow up in the church? This is the kid that we watch playing in these synagogues whenever we were younger. And then they say next, Jesus says in verse 23, And He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. In other words, you healed so many others, but now you're hanging on that cross. Heal yourself if you're really the Son of God. You remember I'm saying that to Him? And then look at verse 24. And He said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of the other widows, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, this is a Gentile land, to a woman, and in this day and time, women were not looked at as, as, as a high class citizen. And not only that, but she was a widow. Here's the point. 
He said, when God sent His prophets to people, there were many widows in this day and time in the Jewish people, and yet that's not where God sent them. God sent him to a Gentile land. God sent him to a woman's house. And God sent him to a widow's house. And that's where the Word of God landed. That's where the miracles of God landed. Why? Because she was poor in spirit. And the good news came to her. What is Jesus saying to these people? Your problem is you're not poor in spirit. You don't see your captivity to sin. You don't understand that you are not walking in the spirit. You, you still think that you've got it all together. And you know what they tried to do to Jesus whenever he said this? Read the rest of it and you see for yourself. <laughs>